Hi, and welcome to the Involved Company Podcast. I am your host, Christina Gonzalez-Sander, and it's Tuesday. So that means we have another conversation with a woman of color, and we're going to talk about the ways that race, identity, and our cultural upbringings intersect with, well, everything else. So if you know this by now, great, but if you don't, We are a lifestyle podcast made for women of color talking about everything from self-development, well-being, finances, social justice, climate change, all of the different things. We're going to talk about it. So in this episode, believe it or not, this is my first time speaking with Yvette and our conversation gave me chills. As someone that grew up reading a ton of books and still secretly wants to write a book at some point in her lifetime. Books have always played a really important role in my life. But somehow it took me until fairly recently to realize that there are books that centered women of color as the heroine and it changed my life. I mean, hello to all the boys I've ever loved before made me cry my eyes out to see an Asian girl get the guy. I mean, that just didn't really happen in a lot of the books that I read or was exposed to. Just the idea that a woman of color could be the center of the story and be the hero changed everything. And in this episode, Yvette de Chavez talks to us about what it means to decolonize our thinking and our books. She talks about what it was like to be a first-generation Latinx graduate student getting her PhD and also about mental health. We talk a lot about how we can normalize these kinds of conversations in our families And if you don't know Yvette, she is a PhD in literature from the University of Texas at Austin, and she focuses her research and activism around QT, BIPOC, by way of literature and implementing anti-racist and anti-colonial teaching practices. Sorry, that was a mouthful for me, but (laughs) you should definitely check her out on Instagram because she shares a lot of different books, BIPOC authors, and she also an artist that not only matches her nails to books, but now she's matching her earrings to books and you can also purchase them. So very, very excited to share this conversation with you. And as always, I would love your support. If you leave a review on iTunes, if you learn something from Yvette in this conversation, I would greatly appreciate sharing this episode with people, posting it in your story. You can even DM me and share some of your favorite books written by women of color so that we can share them. But all that to say is enjoy this combo, support uh, support our guest, and let's dive in. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm super excited to talk to you because I actually got introduced to you by Jane and she was like, Hey, you need to follow Yvette. She's doing this novels and nails. And I was like, Oh, cool. Okay, sweet. And so then I've been following you, I feel like for a while now. And I actually had a conversation with someone that listens to the podcast, like someone that I don't even know at all. And she made a suggestion to me about like, having people on that are from education backgrounds. And I've always had like you on my radar. And I think it's really important to have a variety of different people with different 
you know, job backgrounds and things like that come on the podcast because, you know, women of color are all different. And, you know, I read about you and obviously I've learned about you through following on your Instagram. I know you have a PhD and I don't think that there are that many women of color with PhDs. I actually tried to do some research on it yesterday and I couldn't find any information really. There's like, I don't know if that's just me or what. (laughs) Yeah, no, I know like the number of Latinx people specifically Latinx people who identify as women, very super low PhD numbers. Every time I try to look, it's like, yeah, you're basically a percentage point or something like that, you know, like barely a percentage point. Mm-hmm. So I just give up trying to find like the actual numbers, but it's something really tiny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't even realize that that was what the statistic is, but the thing is you can't even find the statistic on women of color having PhDs, which is crazy. But I spent a significant time trying to Google this yesterday. And I think it's just amazing. And so I would love for you to introduce yourself to the people listening in case they don't know who you are. Yeah, well, hi. Um, I'm Yvette (laughs) Yvette de Chavez. I'm from San Antonio originally, but I came to Austin for undergrad at UT and then I, I left for a couple of years, but then I came back for grad school also at UT. Um, I got my PhD in literature and I kind of just stuck around ever since. And I briefly mentioned, you know, in our little chat before that I work at Houston Tillotson University and uh, it's the oldest uh, institution of higher learning in Austin, which not many people know because they usually assume that it's UT, but um, Houston Tillotson is older than um, UT, and it is the only historically Black university in Austin. So I'm, I'm really proud to work there. And it's a big change from UT. So yeah, that's me. <laughs> that's what I do. Thank you. Is it the first um, historically Black college in the US or no? One of the oldest? I'm not sure about that. I don't want to like say something and it not be true, but I know that it's pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> It's okay. I'll Google it later. But yeah, so I have been, like I said, I've been such a fan of what you've been doing. I love seeing what you're reading because I love reading and I love adding new things to my reading list. And you were actually the first person that kind of introduced me to this idea of decolonizing your reading and your syllabus. And I really wanted to talk to you about that. Like, what does that mean? Because someone like me, I didn't really ever think about that, even though I love to read. And I just never thought about the fact that most pieces of literature that you're introduced to as you grow up literally centers all white foods. Yeah. You know, so much of that started with my experience in grad school and just like, coming up through this academic system. And, you know, first I want to say that I'm merely joining many voices who have been advocating for this, right? And I learned about these ideas while I was in school. So I just, you know, want to make sure that I acknowledge that I'm just joining in on this conversation. But um, when I was, you know, going through a literature undergrad and a literature PhD program, I was constantly having to read things like, you know, Moby Dick and stuff like that. 
and having those books sort of shoved down my throat and told that they were amazing and they're so good and they're important, you know. And I mean, I just could never get into them. So I was assigned Moby Dick in grad school and I didn't read it, you know, like Mm -hmm. I attempted to read a few pages and I was like, "Mm, this is never going to happen. You know, it's just not interesting for me. And that's just like one in a number of books. I always pick on that book because it's a classic. Yeah. And I just, you know, I started to feel like there was something wrong with me that, you know, it's me who can't understand the beauty of this book, despite having, you know, teachers sitting there working me through how this book is important and, and relevant to my life, blah, blah, blah. And then I started, you know, taking classes with people who were like, actually, you don't have to read that book. You know, I had incredible teachers who, and and honestly, it was because I was finally having teachers who weren't white. So I had black professors, I had, you know, Latinx professors, and they were also like, yeah, whatever, that book's not that great, you know? (laughs) So to like have these bold voices telling me, you don't have to see yourself in those books and, and you won't, like, honestly, you're not going to. And here's this other thing that you should read. And while you're reading this, you're going to learn about why you were supposed to believe those books were important. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, you're going to go through this process of understanding colonization in a whole other way than you did before. And I don't even know if I did understand it before, really. And so that's part of it, right? So like, expanding the books that we're reading, but also like switching the way that we think about the world. So like when you are reading these books that are touching on, you know, the experiences of black and indigenous and black indigenous and people of color, you're getting this whole other world. And and finally, you know, it was like, oh, that's what's been going on this entire time, you know, and this is how we can change things. And so it's not just about like expanding the books that you're reading to include by POC writers, it's also like expanding the way that you're thinking about things and seeing the world, right? Mm-hmm. The concept of decolonization stems from this idea of like every, like the land that we're on is stolen land. And like the work that we're doing should all be about how we can give that land back, right? Or at least, um, you know, if we can't do that in this immediate moment, I mean, we should be working towards that. But, you know, other things that we can do to understand how that system came to be in place, right? And what we mm-hmm. can do to push back that system in our daily lives. And I think that these books are actually talking about these things in, in different ways, but it's there, you know? Yeah. So that's why I've made an effort to, I mean, to be honest, it's really rare that I read a book by a white author anymore. I just feel like I've done my fair share and I don't I'm really sure. have to do it anymore, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like years and years of having to do that. And I just don't think that it's something that I really need to do anymore. There are a couple here and there. And, you know, usually when I come across one that I'm like, wow, that was actually really good. I'll tell people about it, but that's a rare one, you know, yeah. like, it's rare. I just, uh, I feel like it's more important to spread books written by POC authors than it is to spread knowledge of ones written by white authors because they have publicists who are doing all that work for them. And just, you know, the way that the publishing industry works, writers of color don't generally have that same um, team behind them who's pushing these books out. They don't have the same money backing you know, the marketing and stuff like that. 
which I think that it's going to be mainstream enough for people. Exactly. Yeah. And I've, you know, I know some people in the book industry. And so they've told me about these things. And I'm like, well, in that case, I'm going to be, you know, it's not like I have like a million followers on Instagram or anything like that. But whatever I can do with my platform to push these books forward, I'm going to do it, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I, I mean, I definitely agree. I studied journalism and creative writing at Iowa. And so, you know, we're reading since my major was writing. And I honestly was like, after being introduced to this idea of decolonization and like, which I'm new to, you know, like I'm someone that is going through the journey of understanding my identity more and expanding my thoughts and my perspective. And that's why I started in Bold Company in the first place was because I knew that I'm not the only person that is feeling that way, you know, of like starting really to question why things are the way they are. And I cannot think of a single book that I read growing up and in through higher education that was written by someone that wasn't white. Yeah, definitely. Like mind blowing. I mean, for me, there was one author and it was Sandra Cisneros. Like that was the only person who I read that was assigned to me, you know, in a class and in America, specifically in an American literature class, not in a class that was titled, you know, like, African-American literature or Mexican-American literature, right? Because those classes exist. But my issue has always been that in order to read those books, you have to take a class that is specified as, you know, basically other. And it doesn't fall into the realm of American literature in the same way that all these white writers do. Mm -hmm. You know, that's actually how this whole thing happened was because of a class that I was teaching that was an American literature class. And my syllabus didn't include any white male writers. And when a higher up saw my syllabus, they emailed me and said basically that I needed to include more canonical writers. And they literally said in parentheses, white men. And that I basically would have a really hard time getting a job if that's how my classes are going to be, you know, that no one's going to want to hire me. Yeah. And so for me, I mean, the thing is, like, that person is not lying, you know, like that. Unfortunately, that's the truth of the situation is that I probably would have a difficult time getting a job if that's how I'm going to be presenting myself and my classes and what I care about. But the other thing was like, you know, I knew that all along, but to see someone put that in writing, like in your face, these white men you're like what yeah and of course I was super angry but also I was like I'd almost felt like a gift that that person had given me to finally show what was going on behind the scenes you know Mm -hmm. Um, the thinking the mentality of these professors who I always thought were you know I'm pushing forward this like essentially white supremacist agenda because that is what it boils down to, right? Oh, it's like totally. lifting only these voices, then we are uplifting whiteness. And at the end of the day, that is white supremacy. You know, I think if white supremacy takes many forms, and if we're afraid to say that, then we're going to have a tough time dismantling anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like that's it very blatantly, right? It's like, 
no, you need to add more white men to your syllabus. <laughs> I guess part of me is a little shocked that someone would be so blatant about saying something like that. But then again, is it really that shocking? Eh, really? But it's kind of a reckoning point, right? For you to be like, oh, we're going to fuck shit up, basically. Yeah. And that's exactly what it was. I was like, okay, thank you. And I'm not going to listen to anything you just said. Right. And of course, you know, one of the things that I think that, you know, so I have an article that I I wrote about this. And one of the things I do feel like I, I limited myself in that article because I really only talked about how I, you know, focused on books by writers of color, but that wasn't the only thing that went on in this classroom where I, you know, am emphasizing the importance of like decolonial pedagogy, right. Or like teaching, because it's also about like, now that you've said that I've already been implementing these um, things where like, I don't really care about grading all that much. I, you know, want to make sure that we're talking about, you know, the fact that we're on stolen land, the fact that racism exists, like all of these things and always bringing it into the work that we're reading and the work that we're doing. And so that's also part of it, right? Is like, if I'm going to be thinking about how to, to fight back, how to you know decolonize in the ways that I can in a university setting, it includes those things. So, you know, one of the things that I think is important is like, it's, it's an act of rebellion, you know, to, mm-hmm. to be teaching in this way. And it's, it can be scary, especially if you're someone who's, you know, I, I think, you know, for instance, for like a black professor or a black academic who's trying to get tenure, it's going to be a lot harder for them to, you know, make these moves mm-hmm. because it's much more dangerous for them than it is for me. Right. But at the same time, I have that privilege. So what am I going to do with it? Right. Hmm. Can you recommend, like, if you had to pick three books, maybe that someone should read? I know is that too many? I was like, you can tell me two. No, or, too I'm middle. Like, I'm like, I'm like, is that enough? <laughs> I got ten. You're like, I got thirty books on this list, but I'm, you know, like for someone that is just starting to realize these things and wants to read other books by by POC. And especially ones that are, you know, expanding our frame of thought from, well, what's essentially like whiteness. Right. Yeah. So I don't want to recommend things that are too academic-y, but but, (laughs) the one that blew my mind was Franz Fanon's Black Skin, White Masks. That was a book that when I read it, I was lucky enough to read it in, you know, uh, a class where I had a professor who's like explaining a lot of the things to me, mm-hmm. but it was a mind blowing text for me. So that one, and it's like a shorter academic text, but it is nevertheless dense. Mm-hmm. You can find a lot of resources to like help guide your reading online, which I recommend, you know, like there's a reason why Cliff's notes are helpful <laughs> and it's not just that you haven't read the book. I think it's a helpful reading guide. And I do think that you should like, Look for those reading guys. So, so that's one. Another one would be this bridge called My Back. Mm. And that one is, it's edited by multiple people, one of whom is Gloria Zaldúa. And that book is amazing because it brings, it's a collection of pieces by women of color from different backgrounds. Oh, that's awesome. 
So um, you're getting all these different perspectives on things like colonization and race and, you know, um, queerness and like all these things in, in one text. So that's amazing. And then I would say, you know, like fiction is super important because, you know, yeah, you don't want to just read these like academic texts, you know, so I love, you know, like Toni Morrison, of course, but also there's like great contemporary books by uh, indigenous writers. They're There by Tommy Orange is really good. Oh, Leslie Marmon Silko's Ceremony is a book. It's an older book, but it's one that I read and it really rocked my world when I read it. And it's a it's a tough one because mm-hmm. it's like doing all these different things with time, but it's worth the ride. Sweet. No, that's awesome. I'm going to I'm going to share these on the show notes for people and then also obviously I'm going to check them out too. Can I ask you what has been your favorite book that you've read during quarantine? Oh my God. I am so obsessed with this book that I just finished the other day. It's actually going to be my, my next like book that I recommend. To the world. Yeah. Well, I'm not doing nails because I started working oh. on jewelry. Yes. So I got that with my amazing. Yeah. So, so now I'm doing earrings that match the book. See, okay. I don't know. <laughs> Let me, I'm just going to grab it real quick. It's called luster. Oh, and it's, Raven Leilani. Oh, I've seen that book. You're showing me the cover. Yeah. I finished this book in basically like two days, which is unheard of for me in general, like lately as an adult. I don't really, you know, sit down and binge. I used to do that all the time as a kid, but not anymore. And also just in quarantine, like it's been impossible for me to just focus for that long. But this book just like, like slapped me in the face. It was amazing. Ooh. Sweet. So that one that's been on my it's been on my peripherals. I've seen it going around. Like I've seen people posting about it too. The quarantine has been amazing for me because I finally am reading again. I feel like obviously as an adult, I you're busy not doing these things that you used to enjoy a lot when you were a child, you know. Like when I was little, I would eat books like my mom, I would be like walking around with a book in front of my face. Like if we were going places, like sticking Harry Potter books in my mom's purse. And she's like, I'm not carrying this for you. <laughs> yeah. She's like, we're literally going to watch our family members run a marathon in downtown Chicago. I'm not carrying your book around. <laughs> but like, this is the first time I've ever had time to read or, you know, like made time to read because you're at home and it's so fun. Like, it's just been super fun for me to be able to do that finally. Yeah, I've had trouble focusing on reading, but which is, I wish that I have to try harder, you know, to like focus. Like, I need to force myself to try harder because of just the wonderful escape that it can be, you know, like I have really bad anxiety and then I'll start thinking about how much I miss my parents and things like that because of quarantine and yeah. not being able to. And it's like, just read a book and like, let your brain go somewhere else. Escapism. Yeah. 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 I've always used books as like an escape from reality. Same. Yes. No, totally. Are your parents here in town or are they in San Antonio? So my mom is in San Antonio. Uh, My mom and my stepdad are in San Antonio. My dad actually lives in Colorado. Okay. So I don't get to see my dad at all, you know? Uh I've done like a social distance, a couple of social distance visits with my mom, 
ride drive down to San Antonio and just like sit in the backyard. But they're in their seventies, mm. so it's like you, you have to be careful. Just, yeah, super careful. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean. Can you zoom the lens back a little bit? I know you said before that you grew up in San Antonio. And then how would you identify? Um, So I identify as Latinx. Okay. Yeah, I think for the most part, I identify as Latinx. You know, it's like uh, sometimes Chicana. Although, I I don't know, I I feel a little weird with that one. So I'm like, is that like outdated now? You know, it's things where it's like the terms are changing all the time. And I just try to keep up Mm -hmm. with what is you know the relevant and appropriate term yeah. to use language of all yeah exactly well what was it like growing up in san antonio it's diverse down in san antonio isn't it right yeah so yeah definitely i mean i just grew up around mexicans you know like or you know latinx people i went to so my my dad was in the military mm-hmm. he was in the force but so my family's all from Albuquerque, New Mexico. And so Albuquerque is primarily, you know, Latinx and indigenous. But then, you know, I grew up in, in San Antonio. So my dad, when he moved to San Antonio, my parents moved to San Antonio, he retired mm. because they didn't want to be moving around anymore. And so I was born and raised there. And, you know, we went back to Albuquerque frequently. But so it's like, I just grew up with, Latinx people. And then because my dad was in the military, there were a lot of black families in the military. So like, that's, you know, I just mostly grew up with during the summer. So I would go to like a a summer, like a day camp Mm -hmm. that there was on the military base. So my friends, you know, were super diverse there. And then I would come home and I'm around Latinx people. So then I moved to Austin for actually, no, then I went to high school. Okay. So all my brothers all went to the same high school, the public high school, and my brothers are much older than me. So the next one up is 10 years older than me. Okay. So when I was getting ready to go to high school and just like in general, even before that super protective brothers, like kind of machismo Mexican brothers okay. were like, <laughs> no, she is not going to that high school. Basically, okay. like they did not want me to go to the public high school. So I spoiled brat went to like a a Catholic high school. I went to Catholic school my whole life. So, but I went to like a Catholic, like pre-K through eighth grade on like the West side of San Antonio, right? Which is, you know, for, I don't know, like the, the black and brown area, right? And then my high school was in like this rich part of San Antonio. And when I got there, that was such a mind fuck because yeah, it was still really diverse, but there was way more white people than I'd ever been around. Really? And not just white people, but like white people with money, you know? And like even the like Latinx people, they had money. And I remember like this girl asking me like, oh, where do you live? And just being like, um, well, I live over here, but we're going to be moving to this other side of town, which was a lie. Like we weren't going to be moving. Mm, okay. I didn't want people to know, like, that's where yeah. I live. You wanted to fit in. That's like what, that's what teenagers want. You know, that's kind of their MO. It's like, you want to fit in even when you're like, uh, do I really even like this? Yeah. So I had, you know, a hard time adjusting to that, but then I got to UT and it was like, way worse, you know, um, because at least like the white people at my high school 
since they lived in San Antonio, grew up with a lot of Latinx people. Mm -hmm. And so I had like white friends who were like down ass chicks, you know, like super cool. And then I'm thinking of one in particular, my friend Casey, shout out to Casey. (laughs) But then I got to to UT and it was like, these are just different. Yeah. I'm like, holy shit. And when I was in high school, it was really like, I eventually got to, I went in with like, no, I didn't know anyone at my high school. And by the time I finished high school, I was like voted class speaker, right? Like I was friends with basically everyone. And then I got to college and I just like entered this shell of shame and not feeling comfortable talking. I barely made any friends. Really? Oh yeah. Mostly I would just like go back to San Antonio on the weekends because I just was so uncomfortable and never really came out of my shell Mm -hmm. when I was. All right. All birds. Y'all, I have to tell you about them because not only do they make the world's most comfortable shoes using natural materials, they care about their community. And that is so refreshing. Recently, they asked me to join their global community of changemakers called the All Good Collective, and I'm so proud to be a part of it. I am part of this group with a couple of other people you might recognize, like Leah Thomas, who's the founder of Intersectional Environmentalist, Lisa, who's the founder of the sustainable fashion brand Me and Studios, and so many other amazing people that are doing really awesome things in their communities. Part of Albert's focus this year has been to empower their own members by elevating our voices, our work, and our stories. They really are on a mission to do things right. And if you'd like to check out the work of the other All Good Collective members, visit community.allbirds.com for upcoming events online and in real life. You can also follow them on social media at Allbirds. But I'm going to give you a chance to seriously try out a pair of Allbirds with our monthly giveaway. So make sure you stick around until the end of the episode to find out how you can win a pair of Allbirds and see for yourself how freaking amazing they are and know that I'm truly, genuinely a fan. All right, back to the episode. What do you think made you so uncomfortable being at UT? Just because you didn't see anybody like you or? Yeah, that and like... So I started there my sophomore year because I did the CAP program, right? So I didn't get into UT the first year. I had to go to UTSA for one year. So then when I got to UT, I just felt like everyone was so much smarter than me. And they were all like raising their hands and had these like sophisticated answers for everything. And I just felt dumb. And I felt like, you know, that's the place where it's like all the books that was me. I was finally in the English classes Mm -hmm. and all like white writers and things like that. And everyone seemed to like be familiar with them. And so I just felt stupid, you know, like basically that's what it boiled down to is that I felt stupid and I didn't really ever come out of that shell. Until after graduation or like when, while you were getting your PhD? Honestly, when I returned to UT for my PhD, it was kind of the same thing. In, fe- in fact, I was like, why am I torturing myself in this way? I remember like hating being at UT. I can't believe I'm signing up to do this again, you know? Yeah. And when I got there, yeah, I was super quiet. And to the point where like professor, like I had a professor pull me aside and be like, are you okay? Like, do you just not like my class? Like, what is it? Because you don't ever talk, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like everything that I felt in undergrad 
was magnified by like 10,000 when I was in these grad school classes, because it's like, basically you take every single like really smart person, like the smartest people in your class in those English classes are the ones who go on to like try to get a PhD in it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I just felt totally out of my element. I, you know, didn't know what I was doing there. And I don't think I really even kind of came out of my shell until I was finished with coursework and I wasn't having to be in classes. Maybe like the last couple of classes I took, I talked a little bit more, but it was still just like really painful the whole time. Yeah. Well, what do you think changed? Because I feel like you have such a bold voice when you're talking about like literature now. And so what do you think changed for you? Because I, I mean, I totally understand, you know, like that feeling of imposter syndrome, like, who am I? And like, what am I doing here? And I feel like that feeling is really like stifling, you know, where you don't want to talk because you're afraid that anything that you say is like not the right answer. And so I'm curious, like how that changed over the years for you. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll get down to some real talk. So I think that I'd spent a lot of time in grad school. I had a breakup, right? Mm-hmm. So this my second year, I had a breakup. And that helped me sort of like leave my shell a little bit because I was forced to make friends, you know? But then I started making friends and they were like mostly white people. And I definitely felt like I was pretending a lot to try to fit in with these people. And like, would have all kinds of um, microaggressions happening all the time. And I um, was dealing with it by like drinking a lot and, you know, things like that, like more escapism. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was really super, super depressed. I ended up dating like this white dude who was just also kind of racist, you know, and it made me turn further into myself and Mm -hmm. even more self-deprecating and just really hated myself. So right after that person and I broke up, it was another breakup, I decided, okay, like I'm going to go to therapy. I had a friend who I knew from my life before UT, like this whole other part of myself where I was like the more outgoing person. Mm -hmm. He knew me from that life and he emailed me. He worked at UT and uh, he was like, listen, like if I could give myself, he's like an older dude, right? So kind of like a, a big brother and was like, if I could give myself a gift, like my younger self a gift, it would be to go to therapy. And I think you should go to therapy. He's like, you're funny and you're angry, but like that needs to be channeled, right? Because I I think maybe he was catching on to like the self-destructive vibes that I was throwing out there. Mm -hmm. So I was like, all right. You know, I had tried therapy before, but I had a white therapist and it was like a disaster. So I was like, okay, if this person is who he is because he goes to therapy, then there's got to be something to this, Mm -hmm. right? So I pursued it. And on the day that I was supposed to have my second therapy appointment, I got a knock on the door and I opened the door and my entire family is standing out there, my mom, my stepdad, and my two brothers to tell me that my other brother had committed suicide. So that was the reckoning, right? Like my oldest brother, um, one who had encouraged me to go to grad school, who had like encouraged me to seek education and all these things. And he was amazingly successful in his own like academic pursuits. And in that moment, when they told me that, like, I feel like everything just 
clicked. Like it became so clear to me that he was suffering in similar ways that I was suffering, but we didn't talk about it. Yeah. You know, so he never told me how depressed he was because he was dealing with all these white people in these academic spaces. And I tried not to tell him because we wanted to have these like brave faces for each other. And then I was suffering from all of this depression and then he killed himself. Right. Mm -hmm. And so in that moment, it was just like, I'm never going to fucking pretend ever again. Like it's just done. You know, like I shed all of those fake friends. I, you know, lost a lot of other friends who couldn't handle me being so bold in the way that I, you know, spoke after that. Mm -hmm. I just worked on myself. And it's like when you suffer that great a loss, it's impossible to be anyone other than yourself. Because if you continue to pretend, that feels like dying. You, you feel know? like trapped. I feel like when and I know that, you know, I'd sent you over some questions and since I'd read some of your stuff on like mental health and Latinx communities, like a lot of, you know, by POC families are like that. It's like, you're strong, you make it through, you push through, but like, you know, at what, like, you know, risk at your mental health, at your family. And so, so, you know, there's this tendency for us to sweep a lot of things under the rug and pretend like they don't exist. And I'm sure that you've thought about this as like, what 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 could have happened if we were all just a little bit more open about how we were feeling? You know, what can that do for people? Exactly. And he was the oldest in the family. And so, you know, sort of took on those stereotypical, you know, characteristics of the oldest child who works super hard, you know, is like the leader for the rest of us. And he very much was, you know, the leader for the rest of us. And I think therefore had to maintain face, Mm -hmm. you know, and I feel like he couldn't tell us any of the failures or the hardships or the sadness that he was experiencing. And, um, you know, I do feel like I was following in his footsteps in a lot of positive ways, but also in a lot of negative ways in that I felt pressure because I was in a PhD program. I wanted to make my family proud. I wanted them to think I was successful, but really I was totally miserable. And, you know, after that, it was like, fuck this. I don't care. You know, like Mm -hmm. that was also the moment when I decided like, you know, it took some time. It wasn't like instant, but after that, you know, I decided like, you know, maybe I don't want to pursue being a professor in this way, you know, like maybe that's not my idea of success and just really figuring out like, what did success look like to me? What would make me happy? Mm -hmm. And, you know, was no longer about measuring up to someone else's ideas of those things, but rather just like, how can I live with myself? Because to me, that's the most important thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I'm in my head all the time. I'm not in, you know, that person's head. I don't know what they're saying, but I know that I have to have things okay so that I can exist in the world because I'm a fragile, delicate person, you know, like I really am. And so I'm just, I'm constantly having to create the conditions for myself to exist. And so if that means like, all right, I don't want to pursue this path of being some hotshot professor or if it means like this person's just really bad energy and they bring me down. And you got to cut it. Just let it rid of it. Yeah. Like all those different things became a part of it. And, and so much of that is because of therapy and, you know, talking it out with someone. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I mean, I do think it's important at the end of the day, I think, you know, it's one of those things where it's like in today's day and age, you know, we see a lot of like people saying like, follow your path and like, always like follow you. And I think that maybe that message also doesn't pertain to the, like, it doesn't contain the nuance, you know, of like why that's so important. And it's, it's like, you get to break free of the bonds that you feel like are holding you back. It's like the societal pressures, the cultural pressures, you know, even family pressure. I've talked to a lot of other, of my Brown friends, my Brown and black friends, you know, like, our families do hold a lot of, you know, weight on us. There's a lot of responsibility that we feel like we have because like you, you know, first generation college graduate, like those are things that are really important to them because they symbolize for them success because they immigrated to the United States, right? You know, they're putting like, their ideas and their hopes and their dreams onto their children, which can cause a lot of stress for us. And, you know, I, I get it. It's a, it was a different time back then. And I think that's like the American dream, right? Is like you move to America and then you like get a, you like work really hard and then you can send your kids to college and then they'll get really good jobs so that they can survive. And I know that that, what like the end goal means, but I think with our families, you know, there's a lot of intergenerational trauma there and differences among our generations that like the end goal can be the same, but the path doesn't have to be what maybe your older relatives or your parents imagine that path to be. Totally. Yeah. I actually just last week, so my mom and I do like Friday FaceTimes. Oh, cute. And just last week I was, telling her about a session I had with my therapist where we were talking about intergenerational trauma and basically what it leaves on your body, right? Mm -hmm. Especially as someone who has like pretty bad anxiety. My mom has anxiety too. And, you know, I was talking to her about this and I'm like, you know, part of all of this is because you, you witnessed so many traumatic things growing up and that's like left its mark on your body, like in your brain, in your wiring, the way that you function in the world. And my mom is 71 and she texted me the next day and she was like, I have not stopped thinking about what you said about how trauma can leave these things on you. Like it can impact you and the way that you continue to live your life. And she was like, you know, and then white people just don't have to deal with these things in the same way. And I'm like, exactly. You know, it's things that, I am lucky that I've gone to therapy. My mom has not gone to therapy, but I've gone to therapy and I can like tell her these things. And she's like, holy shit. You know, like that's important for me too, you know, and, and take those things away. Mm -hmm. But one thing I wanted to add was to these sort of like inspirational things that I think are really helpful. I know that I had a lot of like mantras that my therapist would have me write down, especially when I was first starting therapy. Mm -hmm. um, but things like, you know, follow your path and stuff like that. And also like, cut negativity out of your life, you know, that sort of thing. But I think one of the things that's really important is that we remember our roles in that too, you know? Yes. Because so much of it, I think we can like dismiss things or like when I'm talking about like cutting people out of my life or something like that, I do think that that's absolutely necessary at times. But I also feel like one of the things that we have to do is say like, 
what is my role in this? You know, like what have I done to contribute to this and how can I fix that or like make it better in the future? Cause like there are definitely friendships that I lost. And when I look back, I'm like, yeah, part of that was me, you know, like part of that was me being also toxic. And so, you know, I just think like checking in with ourselves and remembering that like, sometimes we do things too that don't help the situation and we got to work on that too. Mm-hmm. And that's also just important to remember, you know? Yeah. I'm like, Come on. Yeah, you know, when no one's perfect, you know, we have to own up to like the fucked up shit we also probably did. And so, I mean, earlier when you were talking about like, you know, you're like going out a lot and like maybe a little self-destructive. I mean, I completely understand that feeling. Yeah. I think, in college for me, I went to the University of Iowa where there's lots of white people. And so, like, you know, it's hard to pinpoint. And I talk a lot about this. So I'm sorry, y'all, if your guys are like, yeah, 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 Christina, like, I know you've already said that. But <laughs> it's like hard in that moment right, to pinpoint, like, what is it about this current experience right now that I'm having such a hard time with? And what am I searching for? And I think pretty amazing now though that we are able to understand a little bit more about like why we were like that it's like this feeling of not belonging and not feeling right and not being authentic in ourselves and finding the spaces where we can be ourselves you know and it is really to be able to find that community in that space because I think like I said earlier it's very free do you have any advice for any women of color that have gone through similar experiences as you with like dealing with their mental health and anxiety? Well, I think first and foremost, it would be to get help, of course, in any capacity that you can. There were definitely, so I've been seeing my therapist for like eight years off and on the same therapist. So we're pretty tight now, you know, yeah. but there were times when I couldn't afford to see her. And I think that if I had told her like, listen, I can't afford to see you right now, she would have worked something out and she's offered to like work things out before. But I also had like pride and wasn't like willing to be like, uh, I'm fucking broke right now. I can't pay. Right. Mm-hmm. But in those times I would see a curandera and, you know, she was also super helpful. She was like a spiritual elder and, you know, just like whatever you can do, I I also want to, you know, remind you not to like overload your friends with things, especially right now, because there's so everyone is going through. through Mm -hmm. Yeah, So, you know, asking if they have the capacity, you know, to deal with it. And also just like, if you're not asking, like balancing that, right? Like just trying to remember, like if you dumped on your friend, like yesterday, maybe don't dump on your friend again today, you know, Mm -hmm. like do that. And I think the other thing is like trusting your gut. And I, that was like the biggest issue for me was that I was constantly sick to my stomach in all of these like situations and I would just ignore it. Right. For me, like my stomach is always like the, I say this all the time. Like my stomach rules my life. I'm constantly sick. Are you, have you ever done your human design? No. What is that? I need to do it. Okay. (laughs) After this, I'm going to do it for you. Okay. But the reason why I, ask is because of what you just said like my stomach tells me everything in in human design one of the like design types that you can have is the generator we have a podcast episode on this i'm a generator and so it was like that gut feeling is very um tied to that specific design type so i was like anyway 
That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, no, I, I need to know all about this. But yeah, my stomach like rules my life. And I mean, like, seriously, like I have IBS, you know, like my stomach rules my life. But then also like you go to the doctor for IBS and they're like, honestly, there's nothing we can do. It's kind of in your head, you know, like it's for real. Your pain is real. All of the issues that you are experiencing is real. But the medicine that they offered me was an SSRI, which is like an antidepressant because so much of it is like, and like this to your is not right? Like, don't take my word for all of this. This is just my experience. But yes, it's connected to your brain. So when I'm stressed out, my stomach is a mess. You know, mm-hmm. when I'm feeling like things are not comfortable in a situation, my stomach hurts. It's like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie. Yeah. She knew that a vampire was near, right? Uh-huh. That's how I am. Like, my stomach hurts because one of y'all is a vampire. Or, like, the situation is not good for me. Vampire energy is, I'm not digging it right now. Yeah. Yes. Like, whatever's happening is not good for me. Mm-hmm. Like, if you get those feelings, whatever your, like, gut, um, your manifestation of your gut is, like, mine's my stomach, yours might be something else. But like, whatever it is, listen to it, you know, like, if you're in a situation, for instance, like if you hang out with a certain person, and every time you hang out with that person, you're like uncomfortable, or you get like a little stressed out. And there's like small, you know, sometimes small ways of knowing this. Sometimes they're like screaming at your face, like pay attention to your body. That's really what this is like, pay attention to your body. If you have these alarms ringing, you need to work something out there. Like something's happening. So paying attention to those things and, you know, giving value to that. Like when your body is speaking to you, pay attention to that. And I used to be one of those people who was like, whatever, my body, I'm all about my mind, you know? (laughs) Like how disconnected could you be? Like what a disconnect between mind and body. And therapy really helped me bring those two together and recognize the like beauty of having a connection between what's happening in my head and what's happening in my body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So paying attention to your body, I think is super important and uh, remembering, you know, how feelings are real, both the like emotional ones and the feelings that you experience sensationally in yeah. your body to like listen to those. I love that. And I, I also really love that you like, blatantly say like you see your therapist off and on because like sometimes you're broke <laughs> it's like I feel like you know that's something that I'm I hear a lot of people being like yeah go to therapy like you should go to therapy but therapy is also not that easily accessible that's definitely a privilege if you're able to go to therapy and like I'm just happy that you're able to admit like yeah sometimes I'm too broke to go to therapy yeah I mean especially of course in grad school I was making like nothing. And there was just like, you know, months and months where I had to be like, yeah, it's not going to happen. You know, I'm not going to be able to come. But I do think like you have to like expand your idea of what could be therapy for you. Right. Mm -hmm. So like, maybe you want to get like your cards read or something like that. Yeah. Like getting your cards read like that person, assuming it's someone that, you know, is like, good at that and, and has, you know, um, worked extensively in that, you know, cause there are also like card readers who are not that great, you know, but you know, like I always recommend that if you are a woman of color, go to another woman of color. Like, I think that there can be a lot of damage done by white women who are therapists or like, you know, practitioners of some sort. 
I personally like I don't I don't trust it. You know, like I won't go to a white person because they don't they don't understand the experience in the same way. And like they can read all the books and they'll never know. You know, like they'll never actually know. And so there's so many cultural differences that I'm just like it's very, very different when you go to someone that understands you different type of way. So it's like when I go to a woman of color for really anything. There's like that instant, like, uh, yes, you're just like, oh my God, what? you know, that feeling of everything's kind of coming together in a way that you're like, this can be anything, you know? Yeah. I should also say that like, if your only option is a white therapist, okay. Like, you know, don't not go to therapy. Them, then like, go for it. Maybe they don't understand a certain cultural aspect of your family a woman of color might actually understand a bit more of. Right. Yeah. So yeah, definitely agree though. Okay. So one thing so I actually used to do this in the beginning of episodes. I used to pull a card, but I'm realizing that I actually think it might be better to do it at the end. Okay. And so we're going to try it out. See how this goes. Today. I'm experimenting. Okay. So I have these Oracle cards. And I found them randomly. I like met this girl and I just like saw her and she was a woman of color. She was Latina and I was like, I need those. <laughs> like, instantly. yeah. And so I'm just going to shuffle and I'm going to just let you tell me when you're ready for me to pull one for you. Oh, okay. Okay. So I'm just going to keep doing this until. You tell me to stop and then. Okay, stop. Okay. And then I'll read from the little booklet. I read tarot too, but like, I don't know. I like these. They're fun. They're just more like blunt, I feel, with the word. Yeah. Okay. Ooh, I've never seen this one before. Okay. So I'll show it to you. It says meaning. Ooh. I read tarot too, but I'm a little rusty. It's oh, my yeah, I'm I'm pretty deep into it for a while. Same. I love when you mentioned it. I was like, yes, I pull a card every day to like keep it fresh in my mind. But um, yeah. I've had my deck since I was like 10. I've had my deck for a really long time. My stepdad gave it to me. Ah, uh, I love that. And do you read for your friends? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Me too. And every time I do it, they're like, dude, what the fuck? I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm just telling you what they tell me. Yeah. I mean, I definitely put up some like walls when I do it. So I'm like, listen, I can give you the real truth, but you're probably not going to want like the truth truth. So I'll do it like you're not my friend. You know what I mean? No, for sure. Okay. So I found it. So it says, tune in with your higher self to remember the deeper reasons for your incarnation here. What are you ready to call into your life that you weren't before? Remember, you cannot be more ready than you are in this moment. Push against your comfort zone. Trust yourself in crucial moments. Let the fire and water within you, the passion and the deep knowing, dance as one. The result will be extraordinary. Ooh, I love that. That's good. It's <laughs> a good one. I love that. And then the last one, of course, that I was going to ask you just question-wise. I'm like, everyone can kind of simmer about what I just said about that card. If it resonates with you, DM us, um, reach out. But are there any 
there anything that you want to share with our listeners? And are there any women of color that are inspiring you right now? Well, I have some like lectures that I'm doing for universities, but those aren't really like anything that I can say, oh, come to this. But I am, I'm doing these read it and wear it is what I've been calling it. So I'm giving these like book recommendations with earrings. I'm actually, listen, I love this book so much that I bought an extra copy so that I can give it away hey. with some made to match it. So yeah. And I'm, I'm like making a collection of earrings right now. This is like my, I haven't been writing because I'm always putting writing off and I'm channeling it into making some other forms of art right now. And right now, earrings are my art. So yeah, I'm making some dope earrings right now. They're really cool. Yay. I've seen. They're amazing. I was like, damn, she just started doing that? That's great. I love it. I feel like the detailed work of the nails kind of translates really well into this new medium. But of course, there's a learning curve of working with a new medium. Mm-hmm. But I think on pretty quickly. I'm not an expert, but I've got on pretty quick. I was like, I think you're definitely catching on pretty quick. <laughs> I love it. So women who, Yeah, women uh, of color that you're like inspired by that people should go check out. I'm trying to think. Like I honestly am one of those people who is not like super keen on celebrities of any sort. Oh yeah. Know? It doesn't have to be a celebrity. It could be like a my friend. friends are just so like inspiring to me. I just feel like I have this amazing group of friends who are always doing incredible work for, you know, social justice causes. Um, my friend Tandra is amazing. Um, my best friend Sequoia is amazing and always uh, she's, she's got a new job as a professor at Spelman. She's an incredible poet. She's just uh, Ooh, all around. And you're going to, she will be famous and she's going to be the celebrity where I'm like, okay, I don't like celebrities except for Sequoia. Right. <laughs> And then let's I just have so many friends, all my friends, all my friends who you ever see me post something, they're amazing, right? My best friend, Felicia. Yeah. All these women who are just like awesome and, you know, are there to listen and also like do work mm-hmm. and the best, coolest people I know. I love it. And Shout out to all the friends. Yeah. I love my friends so much. <laughs> Even if I don't really get to see him, and even if our relationships are very much like text, you know, like they're always there. And I love those types of friends. Yeah. Those are my favorite. Thank you so much for listening all the way until the end of the episode. Are you ready to learn how you could win a pair of Allbirds? All right. Here are the two things you need to do right now. Take a second to leave a review for the podcast on iTunes and give us that five star rating because you love us so much. I'll even make it easier by sharing the link in the show notes. Number two, tag in bold company and all birds on Instagram, showing us that you're listening to the podcast. Take a screenshot, post a picture, what have you, but make sure that you tag us so that I see it. And lastly, as a bonus entry, post on Instagram and tell us how you're supporting your community. That's it. But Again, make sure you tag us so that I can see it because that's how you'll automatically be entered to win. There's going to be one winner per month for the pair of Allbirds. And this runs from October, 2020 until February, 2021. So get out there. We appreciate your support so much. And if you haven't already joined our Thursday morning newsletter, Women of Color Weekly, 
where we share events, resources, inspiration, all by women of color. Leave inspired, and I promise you'll love it. As always, you can find me on Instagram at Imbold Company. Thank you so much. Until next week.